But uh, yeah, so it's gardening time. Putting, uh, I got a bunch of plants in my yard. I'm gonna go put them in the garden soon. Nice. Uh, yeah, very excited. Um, only one tomato plant, but that's mostly because I didn't uh, buy tomato seeds to grow them. And uh, you know, that's a next year thing. Yeah. I don't next know. year, I, I'm gonna build a cage in my yard uh, to grow weed in because you have mm-hmm. to. It has to be enclosed in Michigan. Uh, you can't just grow it on the side of your house or whatever. <laughs> so they're mm-hmm. like, you have to build a cage or a barn or a something, a struck an enclosed structure. And I'm like, chicken wire and posts. Got it. No sweat. <laughs> nice. Easy peasy. That counts. I think it does because I have seen it. So it better count. Now I'm just imagining somebody going on like Quora or something asking like, how do I build a weed cage? (laughs) (laughs) Can I call my strain rage in the cage? (laughs) Or is that taken? Also, I don't understand wrestling. Quora, (laughs) please explain wrestling to me in great detail. I I think the the normal term for that is a hell in a cell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Quora, what's a ladder match? <laughs> <laughs> I I like it when people who know about wrestling talk about wrestling, but I don't know if I'm ever going to go out of my way to learn it any other way. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I have two friends on Facebook who are always in each other's comment sections, being like, "I can't believe what just happened on you know AEW or whatever the other one is last night," and like I look at them and I see how much joy they're getting from it. And I hate myself (laughs) for my negative attitude towards wrestling that I had towards a lot of my life. But then also I have no interest to learn what they're talking about. It's like when I see Warhammer 40k nerds, I'm like, that is so great for you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm happy for you or. I definitely uh, can't relate to that one. (laughs) I didn't realize that you were a, a tabletop nerd, Dan. Well, actually, you know what? What the hell? I fucking play tabletop games with you. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, but. (laughs) But anyways. (laughs) That's right. We're going to shut up about uh, niche interests we don't understand. My name is Unionize John. Unionize Wizards of the Coast. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wait, Games do they, Workshop. Do they make 40K as well? Or is that Games Workshop? Yeah, it's Games Workshop. That is okay. 40K. Workshop. Yeah, unionize them also. And all the other weird one-off tabletop mm-hmm. game producers. If you have a Kickstarter, you better have a union. Anyway, my name is John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much for your support on Patreon. It really does go a long way towards keeping the show going. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. If you're a patron and you would like stickers and don't have them, just message us on Patreon, and we'll try to make sure that you have them. Uh, If you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review anywhere you think it will help. Uh, Apple Podcasts is the conventional wisdom. The Wizards of the Coast website is also a good choice. (laughs) Yeah, or just anywhere on Reddit. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you can go into the 
are gang stalking the people that listen to my one appearance on Invent the Future for some reason. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's that's an interesting thread. Wait a minute, are are you getting harassed by the targeted individuals community on the internet, Dan? <laughs> no, they are not harassing me. It's just very confusing to me that they liked that episode. <laughs> oh, interesting. I yeah, I think it was I something to I do with, and this Ultra. isn't that, and it wasn't that they do it. It's that they they look into like things of gang stalking and then because of that they were interested in because dan's episode was about like i don't know the u.s biological Empire weapons and biological mind weapons control and, you know all that fun stuff yeah it was the mind control part that they got on yeah that's i mean the targeted individual community is really really big on saying they're being mind controlled in order to evoke symptoms that are reminiscent of mental illness. <laughs> Even though I, just remember, I made fun of gang stalking people on that episode. <laughs> hey, look, oh, it is what it is. <laughs> I just uh, remember the, the comment being like, you know, this is really informative, but they're kind of anti-American. And then the, the comment after that is, That's they're right. Marxist-Leninists. Of <laughs> yeah. course they're anti-American. <laughs> That's right. But anyways, now that we've done Cold Open Part 2... <laughs> Uh, we want to throw out just real quick before we get in the stories, a couple of real quick congratulations. So folks, workers can't stop winning and specifically workers in New Jersey, because last Friday, uh, May 12th, just days after over 9,000 academic workers at Rutgers overwhelmingly voted to ratify new contracts with huge gains that they won through struggle. The workers at the Rutgers Barnes and Noble location voted unanimously 70 to nothing to become the first unionized store in the Barnes and Noble chain joining the RWDSU. So that's wild. 70? Like that's a big number mm-hmm. for a unanimous vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we just wanted to say congratulations to those 70 uh, workers. And also it was a really big week for the RWDSU because it's just like a few days after the uh, REI in Chicago, which also won last week with the RWDSU as well. So hell yeah. Big ups to those folks. Hell yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. And then on Friday, uh, the Clinton street Starbucks in Iowa city became the first unionized store in uh, that state of uh, Iowa. I'm guessing, yeah. uh, with a, another unanimous vote of 25 to zero. Yeah, and you know you got to be really careful because Michigan City is in Indiana. That's the reason why I was <laughs> is that like, true? well, yes, it's in, that is true. In, in like Kansas City is in uh, Oklahoma. Well, or it's also like in Kansas though. It's in um, or is Kansas. Oklahoma City is in Kansas? Well, Kansas City is in Kansas and Missouri. Right. That's yes. okay. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> yeah, continuing on, let's uh, let's talk about uh, the pilots of Southwest and American Airlines who have voted to authorize a strike. Yeah, so, you know, just after we got through a whole tragic, uh, you know, attempted strike by the rail workers, which was ruthlessly crushed by President Biden and both capitalist parties uh, back in November, now we've got another group of workers who are also subject to the draconian uh, policies of the Railway Labor Act who are themselves moving to strike, and that's specifically airline pilots at American Airlines and Southwest. Uh, So 
on May 1st, the airline, uh, the Allied Pilots Association, which represents the 15,000 pilots at American Airlines, announced a nearly unanimous vote in favor of authorizing a strike. And then just last week uh, on Friday, the 12th, the Southwest Airline Pilots Association, the SWAPA, announced that they had just concluded a strike vote of their own with an incredible 98% participation, which... Damn. That, that may be like the highest participation I've ever seen for like a substantially large bargaining unit um, of like 10,000 people uh, and with a 99% vote in favor of authorizing a strike. So, they really want to strike, clearly. Yeah, I mean, this is, but this is another parallel to the rail workers who showed a, a similar level of unity amongst the membership about just how awful the conditions are and the necessity of taking industrial action to try and remedy them. So, but unfortunately, these pilots, uh, all 25,000 of them are facing a similar uphill battle in their attempt to strike. Uh, they So they've actually been negotiating, <laughs> another parallel, for a ridiculously long time, over three years now, with the pandemic upending their negotiations back in 2020. And... So, uh, again, similarly to the rail uh, workers, their primary demands, the, the real points of contention between the workers and the airlines that is pushing them to this strike are not wages, uh, not that you know they couldn't use a raise, but it's quality of life issues specifically mm-hmm. around schedule, which is at the absolute top of, of the negotiating list for pilots specifically wanting more regular schedules so that they're able to actually plan their lives like any other worker. And cutting down on last-minute schedule changes and extensions, which are currently very common due to understaffing at the airlines. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I was reading that, I mean, I was I was shocked that that's common practice because I can't imagine, you know, thinking that I have a weekend off and then getting called into work, except getting called into work is now you have to fly from Maine to Southern California and mm-hmm. stay there for a day and a half without your family. Right. And it's, but it's, it's another similar thing. I like, these are, there's so many parallels, of course, between these folks and the rail workers, because it's another one of these issues where you would look at it, you know, just from a regular person on the street, trying to treat, you know, rail bosses as if they are people with, you know, the same concerns as regular folks and think like, you know, of all the places where I would want workers to be understaffed and therefore stretched too thin and really tired and strung out and overworked. It's people driving mile-long freight trains or uh, piloting uh, airliners. <laughs> well, think about it from corporate's perspective. They love money and they don't care if we die. <laughs> oh, man. An Classic. evergreen quote. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so... They're fighting for more flexibility in their schedules, not just for themselves, but also for passengers, because one of the consequences of this intentional understaffing by the airlines is partially to blame for the huge increase in flight delays and cancellations because they're running their businesses on these razor thin staffing margins. And uh, so like APA rep David Kohler told in these times, quote, the airline doesn't build any cushion in the schedule. The airline builds the schedule based on the theory that everything will go perfectly as they designed it. How often does that happen in the airline industry? End quote. Hmm. <laughs> precision, precision scheduled railroad, you know, <laughs> that's what it's called. I can't remember. Yeah, the actual yeah, yeah, acronym. yeah, yeah. 
It's yeah. so funny too because like when they say precision, you get the impression that they're trying to run it better, but really they're just like precision. Just means we allow more of the failures to happen. <laughs> it's it's basically how bad can we run it before our our customers abandon us? Yeah. <laughs> and um, like and again like we like when uh we did that episode it's like in theory the actual you know it it could work but it would need a very very well staffed like building and and crew and everyone mm. would need to have backup and you know then maybe it would run okay but they're not interested in that because they're interested in maximizing profits yeah Exactly. And so I, we got another quote from uh, SWAPA president, Captain Casey Murray, who said, quote, the decision to authorize a strike is not one we have taken lightly, but given the lack of accountability and dearth of leadership exhibited by our current executives, we felt that this was a last resort to try to force them to face the issues plaguing our passengers, our frontline employees and our pilots. End quote. Hell yeah. I <laughs> felt that when he said dearth of leadership. Right? Oh, that's what I was that's like, brutal. I love yeah. it. <laughs> the executives, they're just they're just not leaders. I'm just imagining like that statement coming out like through a radio. Yeah. <laughs> um and I can't so, call them cornholing little rat shits, so I guess they're I'm gonna say they have a dearth of leadership. Yeah, you know, you, you, it's it's the two kinds of union strike statements. You've got the Teamsters kind, just a little more colorful, mm-hmm. and you've got the more button down kind mm-hmm. here with the uh, the airline pilots. But they're both saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess uh, for a little bit of history, the last time American Airlines pilots attempted to strike was 26 years ago in 1997. That's right. 26 years ago was 1997, uh, which was immediately (laughs) blocked by President Clinton and, you know, the other capitalist parties in Congress, much like the rail strike that we just saw uh, past threats such as that by Delta pilots last year have resulted in significantly better contracts. As reported by In These Times, Delta Pilots uh, unionized with the Airline Pilots Association, ALPA, which also represents uh, pilots on at United, uh, won raises of 34% after just authorizing a strike. So this is going to be a pretty significant way for them to get some of these demands met. Yeah. And the response from the uh, airlines has been pretty predictable. When the workers said, hey, uh, our main concerns are actually better schedules and more time to see our families. The airlines turned around and said, you want more money. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Understood. Uh, So CEO Robert Isom, Isom, whatever, fuck him, even attempted to subvert the union by emailing the pilots directly, offering higher wages if they dropped their demands. APA leaders reached out to the membership saying, quote, do not let management try to close this deal by dangling the prospect of big pay raises. The real fight is to ensure that our pilot schedules are respected so we can have the quality of life we deserve. Everything I hear from these unions is just like boiling right under the surface. (laughs) Yeah, I just like thinking is like, you know, money can only go so far. Like, what what do you do with money when you can't spend it? When you can't, like, you know, have time with your family? Like, what the mm-hmm. fuck is money when your life isn't balanced to actually not just be at work or be totally exhausted after you have been at work? 
Well, and also like the offering of raises is really like such an admission that they have the money to hire more pilots and build more redundancy into the system. And they're just not fucking willing to do it. They would rather have the same overworked under, you know, uh, under provided for workers just at a slightly higher cost to them. Yeah, absolutely. Like, look, no, we're not going to come on. Get back to here. Take some more crumbs. Come on, mm-hmm. you just get to take 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 some more of these and a couple of these, you know, uh, like Adderall, and, and get back on behind the the sticks. <laughs> yeah. How about instead of uh, you know, what fifteen percent of the uh of the surplus value that you provide? How about sixteen percent? Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, and and you know, in yet another parallel, I mean, we've seen. These pilots have also pointed out, much like the rail workers, the way that how these, you know, monopolies, because again, there's only like four or five major airlines in the United States, uh, like United, Delta, Southwest, and American. Don't forget Iceland's International Air <laughs> Service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I no, I mean, forget. you have like the little teeny carriers. Everyone does. Like Spirit, but like those are the big ones. But yeah, yeah. Um, but again, much like the monopolized freight rails, you have, in addition to skimping on the number of staff, they, of course, skimp on maintenance and capital improvements necessary to keep their systems functioning. And Southwest pilots in particular have hammered the airline for the failures that led to the debacle earlier this year when their entire computer system around the country failed and threw flights into complete chaos. And, um, like... <laughs> This is one of those things where it's like, while the airline monopolies may not be quite as ridiculously profitable as the freight rail carriers, it's the same exact like incentives and capitalist pressures from the system on a structural level to understaff, to overwork, and mm-hmm. to undermaintain their system that are, you know, creating the exact same effects in both of these industries. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the breakdown of their equipment is really such a one-to-one parallel to the, the breakdown of the labor conditions because it's like, if you want to imagine the situation that these workers find themselves in, just imagine trying to reboot an entire airport software using something running MS-DOS and right. plugging floppy disks into a SAT drive in 2023. You need to find yeah. somebody who knows Unix. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and also, I mean, if the biggest catastrophes currently are just a computer system going down, what we saw in the rail industry were increasingly dangerous catastrophes. And what does increasingly dangerous catastrophes mean in an airline situation? It means people die. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Which is why, you know, this is another case, just like with the rail uh, workers, that you know, while we probably, and I hate to say this, we probably will not see an actual strike by these workers because if it gets that far, Congress will probably block one. But it, the thing is, like, these issues, much like these issues on the rails, they're not going away. And it's in all of our interests as people who would perhaps like to fly from one place to another or live underneath the pathway of airplanes – and not be hit by one. Or have clean drinking water anywhere near a railroad track. Yeah, exactly. That it, that these workers win their demands and are able to keep the airlines a safe industry. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, you know, support with all of these pilots and uh, solidarity, but... To move to our next story, we're going to talk about Amazon workers in Coventry, England, 
who would soon become the first officially recognized union at Amazon in the UK. The GMB union has been organizing facil- the facility for months, launching 14 day- days of strike action, demanding that Amazon raise wages and recognize the union. The company recently gave workers uh, a, mi- a measly 50 pence raise to 11 pounds per hour. These workers are getting 11 pounds per hour, and the workers are demanding a raise to 15 pounds an hour as a minimum for all employees. Boo, and- use metric. I'm just kidding. That's a great demand. <laughs> it should be higher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is incredible to me that like they're actually paying them less than Amazon workers here in the U.S. I know. Yeah, that's kind of wild. So the- underpaid. I, I can't imagine like working in one of the most dangerous warehouses in the world and getting paid eleven pounds an hour. Yeah. Like that's that's ridiculous. And there's over seven hundred workers in this facility, and more than half of the workforce have already signed cards in order to join the union. And the company is refusing to voluntarily recognize the union. No surprise there. But uh, now it moves kind of into the state situation. But as per reporting by uh, Taj Ali at the at the Tribune, the Central Arbitration Committee uh, will now review the GMB's petition for union recognition. Meanwhile, the company has threatened to overwhelm the union members by bringing in a thousand new workers to the site. Uh, and you know, basically from other locations to defeat the union vote, basically just stacking the number of people who are, have not been talked to by the union uh, to then basically make it so that the union can't get in there, which I don't know much about UK law, but that should be illegal. I don't know much about the UK besides what I've seen on Peaky Blinders, so I would <laughs> recommend that this union become a razor gang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's completely fucked up that they're just like, again, much like in the US, just openly threatening to tamper with the election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like out in the open. But, you know, there's a slight difference in the way that the there there is a little bit of a difference in the way that the union election kind of works, because unlike the U in the U.S., the uh, the CAC or the Center Arbitration com- uh, Committee can uh, perform a simple card check to recognize the union. Uh, however, they can also choose to hold an election. The uh, and considering that the Tories control the UK government currently, it seems like the likely outcome will be to give Amazon a chance to try to defeat the union with an election. That's Amazon pretty interesting is- uh, because it seems to me that the conservative and fiscally responsible thing to do would be to save money and just do the card check because elections are expensive. That's <laughs> <laughs> true, <laughs> but you know, uh. We've never uh, had to really worry about conservatives being uh, overly consistent. (laughs) That's true. Some of them even registered as labor leaders in the Labor Party. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we got, what, Keir Starmer, right? I'm sorry. Anyway, Amazon has tried to counter the union's demand for higher pay by claiming to have raised starting wages by 34% since 2018. Wow. 
with inflation having been 22% in that period of time, there's not a huge amount of space in there. And then saying that 11 pounds per hour is good enough, despite the fact that that won't pay for shit in the UK. It's an entire nation undergoing a cost of living crisis. 11 pounds isn't going to cover dogs. You need to make 11 pounds every 30 minutes to even have a chance. Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 basically like they were paying them a dollar an hour and now they're paying them a dollar 34 and they're like look we've increased the wages by 34 percent yeah we've also increased the price of your uniforms right yeah no it's it's absolutely ridiculous and so uh uh you know amanda gearing who's an organizer with the gmb told reporters quote gmb members have been crystal clear since the start of their campaign they will not accept a pay rise of pennies from one of the world's wealthiest corporations, end quote. And that's a very important thing, because like the fact that they offered them a 50 cent raise, which I believe was the same they offered like workers at multiple locations who had started to have union drives here in the U.S. I'm just like, it is 2023. We are we in the working class are not accepting raises in cents anymore. Like that's. That's that's 1950s raises. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I especially dollars especially now. when Amazon boss Jeff Bezos was just spotted at Formula 1 Miami where tickets cost $5,000 getting bottle service with Ken Griffin of Citadel where where bottle service at Formula 1 Miami costs $200,000. Pay wow. your fucking workers, Jeff. <laughs> wow. I did not Damn. yeah, I didn't know that. I Damn. I well, just remember when I was working in like fast food as like a teenager and they're like oh yeah you got one of the better raises and it was a quarter and i was like Ugh. what yeah. what that's a and like these workers in like 20 years later well a little bit less than that uh are getting a 50 cent raise and that's supposed to be good enough i'm like I, fuck off i can't even wipe my ass with 50 cents because it's not a dollar bill No, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And but one of the things, though, that I think is really great about this campaign is that GMB like they're organizing, you know, they're they're pouring a lot of resources into this campaign at Coventry, but they're not stopping there. They they're organizing at multiple other facilities across England, including in Mansfield. Um, I apologize. I don't I didn't look it up. I don't know if it's Rugley or Rugely. Uh, and then and rugby, which is Hell the yeah. name of the town, which is cool. Welcome uh, to football, Iowa. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they've been holding strike votes among members at all of those locations to not only help build the drives there, but build the broader movement at Amazon in the UK. So that rocks. Uh, we love to see that from the GMB. And it is, though, important, of course, to underline that, like, while we certainly hope that they either shockingly recognize them based on card check, which is what they should do, or they have an election and then they win. That's great. But as we've seen here in the UK, sorry, as we've seen here in the U S winning a union is great. It's wonderful. It's a super important victory, but winning that first contract is really the, the, the big thing. So really hope to see the, uh, uh, the Coventry election win, but then them continue to expand as they're trying to do so that they can force Amazon to actually negotiate that first contract. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's continue with our international news, but maybe in a totally different part of the world. And uh, this is uh, not really a great story 
in the well, it it's it's upsetting as I guess the way I should put it in that like there is a this is you know I guess uh, content warning uh, suicide on here. Yeah. So this is all this is uh, from a very really well written uh, report in Labor Notes. Uh, they're great as always. Read Labor Notes. They rock. Uh, but yeah, this is a really tragic story. This is out of South Korea. You know, we've covered several stories there uh, over the last uh, you know year or so, especially since the election of right-wing President Yoon Suk-yeol, who has essentially declared war on organized labor in that country, and that has resulted in this really tragic incident on May Day, where union organizer uh, Yang Ho-dong set himself on fire in front of a courthouse in protest of Yoon's assault on labor rights. And uh, Yang was an organizer with the KCTU-affiliated Korean Construction Workers Union, the KCWU. And he had been charged with racketeering under South Korea's version of the RICO Act, which is the uh, law on punishment of violent acts. And what he was being charged under, which carried penalties of up to 20 years in prison, was for violating a statute that reads, quote, a person who damages the credibility or obstructs the business of another person by spreading false rumors or by the use of fraudulent means, end quote. So he was going to get 20 years for, what's the word for it? Uh, What we would call slander or libel here in the United States, basically. Yeah. But it's just like you always mean about a business. Yeah. Well, or and they're they're claiming he misrepresented the the operations of the business, which I got to be real with you. Why isn't there a law against the business misrepresenting their own operations? That seems right. like a much bigger issue to me. Yeah. And I mean, he he laid it he left a note behind and he laid laid out exactly why he took that the tragic step of taking his own life saying, "Quote I'm setting myself afire today because my rightful union activity is regarded by the government as an obstruction of business and racketeering. My self-worth can't tolerate this. Why do many people have to die or be jailed for approval ratings for Yoon's prosecutorial dictatorship? Please put an end to the Yoon regime. Please free the innocent detainees, end quote. And like, it's uh really really dark that that these are the conditions that these these folks are facing because again functionally what like this is a result direct result of political persecution of the labor movement like he was essentially facing 20 years in prison for being a labor organizer like and this is in a country that the United States touts as this wonderful beacon of democracy you know in Asia, this supposedly, oh, look, see, we we freed South Korea in the 50s to give them democracy. And, and, and this is what that supposedly means. Yeah, it's bullshit. I mean, we've covered uh, President Yoon's far-right war on the workers quite a few times. I mean, earlier this year, he used the full power of the state to crush the trucker strike, demanding a minimum wage as well as using the KCIA to raid the KCTU offices all over the country on suspicions of being too friendly with groups favoring unification of Korea. What groups? Do you mean almost all Koreans across the entire peninsula? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, his open disdain for workers and willingness to use any legal angle or just brute force to crush workers recalls memories of the four decades of military dictatorship backed by the U.S. following the end of the Korean War. And, I mean, like, go listen to Blowback Season 3. Like, I cannot, you know, say enough. Like, go go look at what the United States did to the Korean people. Three million people died. Yeah. and Wait, uh, sorry. Three million people were killed. Yeah. Well, and this uh, labor organizer who set himself on fire was not the only one who's faced this kind of repression. Just over the first several months of the year, we've saw over 60 union members who have been charged with a litany of crimes in a mass repression campaign by the South Korean government. One third of all police promotions during this period were explicitly for arresting union members. The South Korean government has also taken a page from U.S. history about a century ago and has charged Casey... WU chapters with antitrust violations. Take a look at our, what was that, the Jimmy Hoffa series? Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, because I, like, when I say that, like, because people might think, wait, they're charging a union with antitrust violations? That's ridiculous. And you're right. You're, it is ridiculous. But it's exactly what the Sherman Antitrust Act has been used for more than anything else. I believe it's 90% of the first dozen cases tried under that act were against unions, not mm-hmm. against businesses. So now we're just seeing the same thing exported to Korea. Yep. And uh, the specific claim in Korea is that because many of the members of the unions are forced to work as contractors by... Oh, hold on. Uh, Wait a minute. South Korean government is saying... I'm sorry. I'm confused. (laughs) Okay. So, but I can just do it. So, like, yeah, basically the way that they're charging these unions is they're claiming that because so many of these union members are forced to work as contractors, which is all the only reason they're forced to do that is because of South Korea's anti-worker labor code, mm-hmm. because they're working as contractors that therefore the union is an illegal cartel because it's a price fixing group of contractors colluding to permit fraud. Basically. So they're saying because of our rule, you're technically put into a situation where legally we can consider what you're doing to be racketeering and we could just change the rule, but we would prefer to prosecute you. Yes. Okay. I'm on the same page. Yeah. And the, for that, they have uh, fined the union $130,000 and like, just to point out, like, this is where the U.S. ruling class wants to go here. Like, this is this is how, like, you know, this is the classic colonialism where you, like, you test out all your awful bullshit in the colonies and then you bring it back to the home front. Like, when you see, you know, courts, like, about to, in Glacier Northwest, potentially rule that you can just sue a union into oblivion for striking, essentially making striking illegal, and the continued attempts to use the labor code to say that workers of all stripes are independent contractors and not employees, like, that's not too many steps away from this environment that they want here where unions are functionally just made illegal. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, I know we we do these stories and they may not seem like they're necessarily related to the situation for our largely American audience. But like, in addition to just the general solidarity, it's like, 
imperialism means this all affects all of us. Yeah. yeah well, it's, it's like we say, back. solidarity isn't just something you do because it's cool and good and right. It is those things, but it's also a tactically good decision. Right. Exactly. And so another thing, though, to point out is that there is another union, major union federation in uh, South Korea, the more conservative FKTU, uh, and it is widely considered in South Korea to have a actual problem with corruption and organized crime that the KCTU does not really have, but it is the latter because of its progressive leanings that has faced far more scrutiny and an attack by the police. <clears throat> and President Yoon has basically openly declared the political nature of the attacks, just hiding them barely behind like red baiting, just saying, no, we're not doing this because they're allied with our political enemies. It's because they're secret North Korean spies. <laughs> Which is somehow different than allied with our political enemies. Right. But the other thing, though, this is also clearly not just, you know, the standard structural reaction, capital hates labor, etc., but it's also because they're afraid of the rapid success of the KCWU because uh, the union has doubled in size from 2016 to 2020, adding 75,000 members. And that is something that South Korea's ruling class does not want to see in their construction industry. I mean, that is explosive growth. That is really earth shattering growth. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? <laughs> that is that is a bombshell of information. <laughs> yeah, well and and the other thing though is like it's not just that this union is growing, it's that they are like explicitly a militant union. Mm -hmm. The KCWU is the only other major union that really j fully joined the trucker strike early this year walking out in solidarity as well. And so like it is just extremely clear that by focusing on this union that it is incredibly obvious political persecution and a really a, an open form of class warfare by the rich and uh you know inc which includes of course the american ruling class which dominates the economy of south korea yeah i mean i just want to remind people like what the unions were looking like when they were on strike and if I, we put a bunch of like art in the uh you know the cover arts of the of the episodes of these korean striking workers and they were like marching in rank and file military style order and these they have increased their ranks double like they are like looking like a very powerful force and that scares the shit out of the capitalists yeah they're extremely cool um <laughs> exactly and we a hundred percent support them and this whole thing it's just it's another tragic reminder that like we don't have democracy under capitalism mm -hmm. and we won't until we end that system and so uh you know solidarity with the the kctu and really just with the korean working class more broadly uh, in their their fight against this repression from this far-right government yeah, and I mean we're having a a pretty uh international episode this time. We should talk a little bit about what's going on over in the Philippines where uh one of the most brutally exploited which is which is one of the most brutally exploited places on the planet for workers. 
I mean, it's been devastated by a century of U.S. imperialism. It's, there's just so many things to point out to why these workers, but so many things to talk about, including the uh, you know successive far-right governments of Rodrigo Duterte and now Bong Bong Marcos, the son of the country's former U.S.-backed dictator, and you know the amount of repression that they have exerted on the on the workers of the Philippines. And, I mean, tragically, just a few weeks ago, labor organizer Alex Dolorosa was found stabbed to death after years of government harass harassment uh, just because he was doing organizing for the uh, BOP Industrial Employment Network, BIEN. Uh, the BIEN uh, is a workers' organization helping those employed in the customer service and business outsourcing industry basically fight for better conditions. Yeah, um, and it, I mean, this is just there's not a there's not a I mean there's not a whole lot to this story. Unfortunately, it's a, just another uh, tragic incident in a long string of attacks on labor organizers in the Philippines. Uh, the government's been attacking this organization specifically, BIEN, for years by red-tagging its members, which what that means is if folks maybe remember some of our coverage of the Indian farmer strike, we talked about the way that left-wing uh, organizers will often be tagged as being pro-Naxalite or urban Naxals uh, in order to justify uh, just locking them in jail for on spurious charges. Same thing, it's like red baiting, you know, here in the US, but with a very violent edge to it. And this is very common in the Philippines to any sort of uh, you know, pro-democracy organizer, you know, people who have nothing to do with the Communist Party whatsoever and just want to have actual democracy and not have the country be completely dominated by the United States that have been tagged as communists and basically where the, the state is like encouraging vigilante violence against folks, which has a lot of, I mean, if folks know anything about the Indonesian genocide, uh, which was largely prompted by the United States and the CIA, um, that has a lot of very similar leanings, which is why there's been a 50-year uh, people's war in the Philippines uh, by the NPA. But anyway, uh, just getting back to this story specifically, uh, the Philippines has been one of the most dangerous countries in the world for labor organizers for a long time because of this, because of the state's policy of red baiting against any sort of democracy or workers organizers. And, and in this case, uh, Alex Dolorosa was also a fighter for the LGBTQ community in the Philippines and just for social justice more broadly. And all of these just unfortunately, because of the far right nature of the Comprador government in the Philippines, it put a target on his back. And he, he, he fought for years as an organizer to improve the lives of uh, call center workers in Bacolod City in the Philippines. And basically because of that, because he was trying to, you know, win better conditions for those workers and, and democracy in the Philippines more broadly, the government basically marked him as somebody who anybody could just commit violence against. And so like the CWA and I saw several other unions and of course the uh, Anak Bayan, which is uh, like one of the bigger um, democracy organizations in the Philippines, all put out, you know, statements, you know, condemning this, calling for an, uh, an actual investigation, which probably will not happen because of the far right Marcos regime. 
And there was, a, there was even a statement from the U.S. State Department condemning the murder, but that came just a week after Biden hosted Marcos Jr. on an official state visit at the White House and signed a new agreement to build four more U.S. military bases in the country. So I'm not really seeing this as putting very much pressure on the Philippine government. Yeah, probably not. I mean, most people and here's the thing, like the horrors of what has happened in the Philippines are like not common knowledge in the United mm-hmm. States, even though they absolutely should be. You bring up the Marcoses and most people know about Imelda's shoes and that's right. it. Yeah, no, I mean, it like U.S. imperialism has been really horrifically treating the people of the Philippines for like uh, I think over a century now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since and it's we... intensifying now as like, you know, the military bases is primarily being used as a threat against China. Right. Exactly. It's, you know, attempting to, to drag the Philippines into the United States attempt to contain the rise of any competitor uh, in the world. But like, <laughs> this I, is what they mean when they say pivot to Asia, just so you know. <laughs> right. No, exactly. And, but you know, I just wanted I, I wanted to bring this story up not only to highlight, you know, the the heroic nature of labor organizing in a lot of places like the Philippines or 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 all sorts of places, I mean all over Latin America where it can be like a death sentence in some places if uh doing that sort of work. But also to highlight, you know, how imperialism is a threat to workers everywhere and that's why as as workers in the imperial core in the belly of the beast that we have a duty and a direct material interest in fighting imperialism and making our workers organizations explicitly anti-imperialist. Absolutely. These organizers fighting for their lives in the Philippines, in Latin America, in South Africa, whatever the case may be, uh, are on the front lines of the exact same struggle that every working person in the world is on. Yeah. So I guess, you know, solidarity with all of the people organizing abroad and, I guess, to continue with our international stories. So we're going to talk about uh, German railway workers who were about to strike, but have just recently, as of like, what, today? Yeah. uh, Announced that they have actually avoided their strike. But we're going to go over the actual like details of the story. Because like, as rail workers around the world have been, you know, fighting, and uh you know been the tip of the spear in fighting against like rampant inflation when you know railway workers in the UK, France, Greece and other countries you know have all struck in recent months over the soaring cost of living the recent german rail workers had uh have joined the movement as well starting on uh sunday evening may 14th running through tuesday may 16th 230,000 rail workers across germany would have walked out shutting the country's largest transit network in protest of their low wages uh, this would have been the third nationwide strike by the deutsche bahn uh workers and the first longer than 12 hours uh deutsche bahn is the main rail network operator employing 180,000 of the 230,000 railway workers and the remainder are spread over like 50 smaller uh, companies and operations oh cool the american system (laughs) well uh they 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 have trains (laughs) never mind (laughs) (laughs) no their system is actually very different (laughs) Uh, they have a nationalized system the deutsche bahn is like a national rail system right 
Yeah, you know, I just meant having a monopoly with a bunch of little tiny fish orbiting around it. But yes, I mean it is it's pretty different. <laughs> um, I don't actually know. Uh, hold on, Nash. Yeah. It, okay. Yeah. It's it's state owned. Yeah. Even better, you can it's, strike it's, a capital in um, the state at once. Yeah, it's like. I think it's relate. It's kind of like Network Rail, which is which is p- like quasi privatized. This is not quasi privatized, but in the same way that it has like that linkage, but it kind of acts like a capitalist entity. Oh right, so it's like the difference between the state directly operating something, the state setting up a company to operate something, and the state hiring a company. That's like your spectrum. Yeah, kind of. Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah. So this, you know, really would have been huge. I mean, two hundred and thirty thousand rail workers because they they'd had two previous strikes that were only for half a day which still i mean shutting down the whole uh rail network for a business day that's that's huge um and the keys here they are fighting much like we've seen with so many other workers across europe especially uh against a the broader cost of living crisis so railway workers you know they've experienced in germany huge inflation and and really a massive downturn in the German economy since the United States disastrous sanctions regime against Russia uh, during the Ukraine war. And that basically they're just like, they have offered us pennies and we need an actual raise when everything has gotten so much more expensive. And they've pointed out that while, you know, Deutsche Bahn has been just like going like wild, like attacking the union for striking that, then saying it's it's unnecessary and the workers' demands are unreasonable and it's ridiculous. But at the same time, they've paid out hundreds of millions of euros in bonuses to managers while worker pay has not gone up, like, at all. So, yeah. I mean, like, that's we've seen that in basically every industry in the capitalist world. And so, yeah, and- I mean, I'm, I guess we're not surprised about that, but uh, it's always good to remind the listeners that that is consistently the way that things go. And and like their rhetoric was getting pretty ridiculous. Like Deutsche Bahn's board put out a statement right before the strike was called off saying, quote, this crazy strike is completely unjustified and utterly excessive. The EVG wants to paralyze the country for an unbelievable 50 hours instead of seeking compromise. (laughs) (laughs) I love I love that this German company is responding in the exact tone of like Freud's hysteric, (laughs) like the clinical (laughs) diagnosis. of the hysteric (laughs) and like one of the things that gives these workers so much leverage is that evg the union that represents them they represent both passenger rail workers and freight rail workers oh fuck yeah Two hundred thirty thousand workers isn't just like because like the rmt for instance is representing passenger train workers. And so they can shut down the whole passenger rail system, which is enormous. But the EVG is shutting down that and the freight rail system when they strike. So like that is absolutely enormous in its economic impact. So not only can you not go to Dusseldorf, no coal or timber is entering Dusseldorf either, either. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so they'd previously conducted short single day like mega strikes with them, the airline workers and the bus workers, which just shows you how broad the uh, coalition of workers being hit by this uh, cost of living crisis is. But even with that, the uh, Deutsche Bahn has been unresponsive to their demands. And so they were about to launch this uh, 
50-hour strike. And it was because the company is offering a raise of 9%, but in an, it's like a tiered system. Oh, God. And workers are saying, mm, how about 12%? That needs to be at least 12% because it needs to actually be above the inflation. Um, and so right before the strike was set to begin, the EVG called it off because Deutsche Bahn agreed to one of their other key demands, which is that the lowest paid workers and new hires would need to get a minimum wage of at least 12 euros per hour before bonuses. And before this, the company had been insisting, you know, no, they're going to get $12 per hour, but it was on this like arcane system where their mm-hmm. actual base pay was like 10 euros. But they're like, oh, well, averaging out bonuses, they'll be over 12 oh. euros per hour. Employers should not be able to crib notes from like tiered pay to win mobile games when they come up with contract (laughs) ideas like fuck you. You should be able to smell that bullshit from a mile away if you've ever had to pay for DLC in your life. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And so uh, right before the strike was about to happen, the uh, Deutsche Bahn came back and said, fine, fine. We'll agree to a minimum wage of 12 euros an hour before bonuses. So if there's bonuses, it takes them up to 13 or 14. Um, and, and by doing that because of German labor law, which admittedly I do not understand. Um, so it is assuredly is- arcane and Byzantine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is just, uh, this is from an article in uh, Euro news and mm-hmm. then one in Reuters. But, um, because they met that demand, they were able to go to the courts and say, look, we're bargaining in good faith. They can't strike. They have to come back to the, the bargaining table. And so they were going to, they basically were threatening to get a court order to stop the strike. Uh, and so the union has returned to the bargaining table, but they have explicitly said, quote, this is by no means the end of the wage dispute. <laughs> so, uh, we may be having another story about another German mega strike in the near future if Deutsche Bahn continues dragging its feet. I love throwing that by no means in there. It's some real like per my last email shit. Like <laughs> yeah. I think that's as spicy as Germans get sometimes. So I'm pretty glad to see it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I guess speaking of spicy strikes, there uh, is back in the United States uh, something that you know Dan mentioned in the last episode that we wanted to cover was the Oakland teacher strike, and that actually just like the uh, the rail strike that was gonna happen in the uh, in Germany. You know, this has ended today as they have gotten a tentative agreement. But I'm going to go, we're going to go over all the details on this because it was huge and the things that they were fighting for were very, very important. So on Thursday the 4th in Oakland, California, around 3,000 teachers, librarians, nurses, as well as other staff went on strike. These school staff educate and support 34,000 students within the district. And this is the third time within five years that this union has been forced to strike. Salaries. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's That's a lot. A lot. <laughs> the salaries for teachers in Oakland are the lowest of any major urban district, which has oh, led oh, to the district hemorrhaging teachers who either retire or move to better paying districts. The New York Times reported that the district has lost 20 to 25% of its teachers each year due to these factors. That's disgusting turnover for a school. (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, like that 
I, that should be like that's the sign of like your school system has failed and needs an immediate replacement of its management and more resources. It's like yeah. if every year an entire department and a half quit. Yeah. The thing that I thought was wild about it is they didn't actually give a timeline for when those numbers were, so I can only assume that it's been a while that this yeah. has been happening. Uh, the district offered the teacher's starting rate uh, a 20% raise, which would go from 52.9,000 to 63.6,000. Uh, this was originally, and I we don't have a ton of details on the actual tentative agreement yet, but so we're going to go over some of the original um, stuff. But and then, you know, that's for starting teachers just to try to retain teachers. But like the living wage in Oakland is much higher than that. Well, or maybe it's like just barely in that area. And uh, uh, according yeah. to the MIT living wage calculator, because I was thinking the same thing <laughs> Yeah, uh, for one adult with no kids, uh, the living wage in Oakland is basically $24 an hour or $48,000 a year. Yeah, so and, just barely over. Well, and, and teachers. teachers are famously single with no kids. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, and then the uh, the other raise was for longtime teachers, which was about a 16% raise uh, up to about $109,000. And so that's like for the longest term teachers, it's like the top scale of what teachers would get. Uh, but their strike was not just about wages. In fact, it primarily wasn't about wages. Very similar to the pilot strike that we talked about earlier, where the they were like, hey, we gave you this raise. Why don't you just sh- shut up, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the teachers were like, uh, no, we are actually fighting for more nurses to be hired, uh, better mental health services for students, better conditions for disabled students, and a bunch of other things, including using some of the excess land that uh, that the school district has to house homeless students and specifically enfranchise historically disenfranchised groups like, you know, minority groups and black communities and, like, just trying to make it so that the most systemically disenfranchised people get a little bit more help from the system. Well... See, like, this is one of my personal, like, favorite trends of, like, recent changes in the labor movement mm -hmm. is, like, where you have teachers' unions not just fighting, you know, for better working conditions, which are their students' learning conditions... But explicitly for social justice demands, this understanding that like their position in society is like not it's not just it's not just a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. It's like it's they are as as kind of like stewards of the community that that they're leaders in 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 a way of of making sure that the state government is city government is providing the things that it's supposed to be providing for. Yeah. And what impresses me the most about this is that it's not like so many groups in the United States uh, have been asking for, it's not just an acknowledgement of the problem or a symbolic gesture. They are asking for real structural change to the issue that will solve it in some in some meaningful degree and i know that that seems like not the highest praise this is america that is immense praise that is something you don't see every day Mm -hmm. yeah because they're not just like 
youth homelessness is a problem and we need to raise awareness. Mm-hmm. It's youth homelessness is a problem. It is the responsibility of society to eradicate that as a problem. And therefore the state needs to be using its resources to solve that problem. And we're going to use our leverage as laborers to make sure they do use their resources well, and it's to solve a, that problem, which that all kicks ass. And, and it's, a, it's a very particular materialist demand. They're saying, we see that land right there. And we think mm-hmm. that would be the perfect spot. I mean, that's a concrete suggestion. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I want to get into some of the details that actually surround that. But first, talking about the like mental health services and better conditions for disabled students, we have a quote from uh, math and Spanish teacher Hilaria Barajas, who said, "Quote: There's a lot of poverty, and sometimes there's violence." End quote. And in regards to like the wage disparity from the highest earning people in the community, including like people in the tech sector, she said that frustration brings us together. And I, I think that that's something that's really important is thinking they think so much about the most disenfranchised people in the community and then looking at the like you know, the ways in which, you know, there's a a very big disparity in living conditions for people in their community saying, we can do better than this. Now, through this whole thing with the, you know, also the getting the land use for uh, houseless students, the district began hand-wringing about how much learning loss happened during the pandemic (laughs) as to why they should stop striking. Shut up. yeah, is ridiculous. And uh, how significant the, the raises that were necessary means that they won't budge on these other issues. Uh, these excuses are pretty convenient when the school board withheld the full authority of the district to even bargain with the teachers. This I, I did not quite understand exactly what this means, but to, what I understand is that the school board said you cannot actually meet their demands, even if you wanted to. You can't. Like they they were literally oh, yeah, restricted yeah. from it. So it's like uh, kind of like how like a lot of the right wing state legislatures mm-hmm. are now preventing municipal bodies from being able to like give people uh, anything good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, almost certainly. Um, and then the past, and then on Friday, I mean, that was the seventh day of the strike, which was which would be the last day of the strike. Um, there had been a little bit of progress on negotiations, but the uh, union was not going to accept excuses for the district refusing to meet the demands that were designed to help support students and especially the most vulnerable students. The district said that the, uh, as like a protest to the, to this, the district said that the plan that the union had would d- cost $1 billion. <laughs> Dr. And evil like, voice. Look, if you're going to just make up a number, you got to be more creative. They <laughs> yeah. literally made up a number because the union said that that number was ridiculous and it would cost about a hundred or it would cost about $500,000 annually. And so here we see the quote-unquote pay-for argument wielded openly as propaganda against the union who would simply just want to help the community and raise the conditions of systemically disenfranchised children. I'm just going to like try this approach at my like local city council meeting, just showing up being like, 
You guys have proposed hiring 30 new police officers. That's going to cost a billion dollars. We are too small of a city. We don't have a billion dollars. Where are we going to get a billion dollars? You can't do this. We don't have a billion dollars. And then just leave and like don't even let them say anything. Well, look, I have often said that the left's relentless commitment to consistency and always being correct is in some specific situations actually a huge liability. And it is strategically important occasionally to make zero fucking sense <laughs> in the service of something good of course <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely uh the district at that point after being told that uh they were lying they began to cry about how uh, the strike was causing the possibility of seniors to not get their final grades on time, which could impact their path to college and the rest of their lives. Sounds like your uh, fault. Sounds like something you caused. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was... It's like, oh, damn, sound, sounds like a really good reason to meet the teacher's demands. Yeah, why exactly. are you listing our leverage to us? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. and that point is exactly what I wanted to bring up in this because... When were they going to be able to strike besides right now? Because they actually have been without a contract since the fall. And so what are they going to strike during the summer when there's no kids and it's going to have no impact? And they're no, they're and they're they're going to have to wait until next fall when their contract has been expired for a full year. No, they're going to strike right now at the end of the year. It, it's the same, oh, well, you can strike, but it can't be disruptive. Or you can protest, but not right now. Or not over there. Or not like that it's yeah it's just it's all bullshit it's 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 respectability nonsense yeah Um, absolutely and so thankfully that respectability nonsense does not appear to have worked (laughs) (laughs) because uh just at the like last minute i think this was like a midnight deal like on sunday night going right before monday the union announced they've reached a tentative agreement to end the strike uh according to the east bay times Union officials slept in their offices to maximize time at the bargaining table over the weekend to get the deal done. Uh, The district finally did agree on four of the key common good demands that the teachers uh, had made, including more support for immigrant students, more school staff, more counselors, uh, and more librarians. Uh, The two-and-a-half-year contract also includes an average raise of 15.5% for teachers and extra stipends for bilingual teachers. And so, of course, we know based on the numbers we talked about earlier, we know that those are not huge raises by, oh, 15%. But it also emphasizes that that was not the core demand. They won good raises, but good enough. But more importantly, they won things like they won a majority of teachers on a new city committee that will direct how state grants for community services at the school will be spent, basically allowing the teachers in the community to control how state funds are going to be spent at the school instead of just the school board. Right, which is going to be their path towards actually getting that housing demand met. Mm-hmm. They and that also includes how programs will be spent to uh, you know designate and empower black thriving community schools in particular in majority black uh, areas of Oakland. Uh, they also won uh, new restrictions on the ability of the school district to close down schools without community input, and it includes uh, agreements from the city of Oakland to work with teachers and parents to provide housing for homeless youth. So, uh, yeah, so uh, Kampala Taiz. Uh, 
Bronsifer, uh, the vice president of the Oakland Education Association, said, quote, beyond the economic gains, this hard-fought tentative agreement, if ratified by our members, will help ensure the educators, parents, students, and other stakeholders have a voice in the decision-making process, end quote. This is exactly, I mean, like, they said that four of the demands, I mean, I, I'm actually only maybe just due to my unfamiliarity with the contract uh, initial demands and the outcome of this tentative agreement, uh, that almost sounds like what exactly they were trying to get. They literally got control and raises. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know the entire like shape of the context surrounding this, but it sounds to me like a pretty good W. If you ask me, yeah. I mean, we'll, so we'll, we'll see how the, how the vote shakes out and mm-hmm. it's possible there might be some holes in there, but it, it sound on first blush sounds like they won some, uh, some pretty big wins for the entire community and that kicks ass. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll make sure to, to let people know about the outcome of that vote as soon as mm-hmm. that comes in. Right. Well, speaking of kicking ass and getting dubs, uh, we want to go right to a a state that I lived in for 10 years, Pennsylvania, to a city that I love but have never lived in, Philadelphia. I've been there three times and seen three fights on the sidewalk, one each time. It's a beautiful (laughs) place. Uh, (laughs) The third one was moments after getting out of the car. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) we're here to talk about the University of Pennsylvania health system, where residents and fellows have voted to unionize, becoming the first group of training doctors in Pennsylvania to do so, as well as establishing the largest new union in Philadelphia in 50 years. I think 53 years, technically. That's awesome. It's so fucking rad. So this vote took place over three days over the course of last week. Uh, A spokesperson for Penn Medicine acknowledged the election results and noted that the vote is not yet certified by the NLRB. (laughs) Oh, no. We we don't have to acknowledge them just yet. (laughs) We absolutely will stall until the last (laughs) second that we can. But um, (laughs) ridiculous, especially after you see the vote margin. Yeah. So out of the 1,400 or so workers who will be represented by this union just over a thousand of them voted and the vote passed 892 to 110 with a landslide 89 percent yes vote to unionize incredible yeah. solid and they're B+. out here it's not official yet <laughs> yeah you, it's uncontestable basically uh so we did hear we're from coming Ca- back <laughs> they had us in the first half not gonna lie yeah <laughs> Um, But we heard from Kendall Major, a second year internal medicine resident who said, quote, the road to this day was not easy, but it was worth it. As the primary caregivers for many of our most vulnerable community members, we need a say in the decisions that impact our ability to care for patients. So put another tally in the workers do actually care about their patients column. Mm hmm. Every single time. Mm -hmm. Every time. (laughs) And then we also heard from Madison Sharp, who is a third-year OBGYN resident, who said that she and her colleagues received text messages and emails telling them about the downsides of unionizing. During the election, signs posted around the campus told the physicians to, quote, give us a chance, and also, quote, 
vote no. Not only <laughs> did they do like, the appeal of give us a chance, but they wrote give us a chance on the fucking signs. I want to. I wanted. I wished I could have seen just somebody go around and adding pictures of Gil from The Simpsons to the give us a chance sign with him, like you know, who's nervously like you know holding his hat in his hands. Just give us a chance, guys. <laughs> oh, the University we of Pennsylvania Health System's in it again. Oh goodness. <laughs> oh lord. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets hit by a car. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh, um, the residents <clears throat> went public with their organizing plans in February. So this is, uh, you know, been going on for a little while, but their efforts began long before that even. So one of the catalysts to organizing, the residents said, were the extra shifts they were expected to cover during COVID-19 peaks. So during COVID-19, I feel Um, like we almost, we, we talked about this back during like some of the major, like more news, uh, throws of the pandemic, which is still ongoing, but when it was more popular in the news, we're like, there's going to be so much organizing around this. Like, obviously that wave is still going and it's not mm -hmm. stopping now. It's nice to have a prediction come true like that after everybody saw Trump get elected and was like, punk rock's about to be really good again. And it's like, <laughs> look, Soul Glow oh released some great music, but they were going to do that anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Residents and fellows earn a set salary annually without any extra pay for taking on more hours. So you can see why they would object particularly uh, sorely to these extra shifts. Working well over 40 hours per week and sometimes double that all the way up to 80 is not uncommon, said the physicians. And while they can expect their income to increase after they finish training, their student loan payments usually cannot be delayed until that time, which creates financial stress for them during the interim. Additionally, because the work is a required part of their medical training, residents are completely unable to exercise the escape hatch available to many workers of just quitting the job and going to a different employer. That is not on the table for them. They are trapped in this location for their residency. Yeah, it's like, this is like similar to the situation faced by the junior doctors mm-hmm. in the UK that we've talked about before, where it's like they're locked into these low-paid positions and you like just can't quit because you won't get your license if you do. Yep. And then uh, in an increasingly common theme in stories we cover on the show, in addition to base pay concerns, residents and fellows are also organizing the union around their health care benefits, parental leave, and child care support. So we heard from Dr. Leah Rethy, who was pregnant with her during the first year of her internal medicine residency at the hospital of the university of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She gave birth during her second year. She worked through her 40th week of pregnancy so that she could save her time off and spend more time with her newborn. She said that her problem with childcare is not unusual. Resident, of course, she needs a lot of childcare now that she has two children. And residency directly follows undergraduate education in the training of a doctor, and so usually, and usually four years of medical school. So it overlaps with childbearing years, because a lot of these people are actually in their mid to late twenties. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like that's not surprising. I don't know. There is just this expectation that when you're doing some sort of path in your education that, again, we've talked about this so many times, that you're just some single individual with no cares in the world and no family and no plans to do anything but work hard for the capitalists. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, it's just ridiculous that, that they're putting put into this position where 
they don't even have the childcare, or they're they're fighting for healthcare benefits. They're literally gonna be doctors. <laughs> I know. Um, so she also mentioned that she knows a lot of people who've delayed having children and said, quote, I also have heard a number of stories of people delaying having children and then ultimately having real challenges, getting pregnant because of being older and various factors. So for a lot of people, having a family is like really important and it's pretty deranged to ask people to be like, Hey, don't start trying to have a family until you're well into your thirties when you finally make enough money. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is just a, something that many, many people do. It needs mm-hmm. to be taken into consideration. And then those same people being like, why aren't people having kids? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. Um, and then uh, some of the other concerns voiced by the union include the upcoming loss of parking benefits that would lead to an extra $200 a month in costs for resident doctors, as well as dirty call rooms, which are rooms where residents can stay and rest if they have to work overnight. They have said that some of the current call rooms have mice and cockroaches. And Dr. Madison Sharp again elaborated that sometimes call rooms are not even available for those trying to sleep during a 24-hour rotation. She said... So I tried to sleep in a dialysis chair that didn't lie flat in a conference room off to the side. Two years later, residents on that same rotation still don't have a place to sleep for a few hours on a 24-hour call shift. Keep in mind that Penn just opened a billion-dollar hospital but neglected to create physical space for us. And to me, that was one of the most disgraceful things I've ever heard. <laughs> Which is yeah. a great way to get effective health care. Yeah. And also, the they're... The, the cockroaches i looked at the articles when i when looking at this and there's they literally got a picture of a cockroach in these facilities mm-hmm. i'm sure it wasn't hard to get and so after this vote, this overwhelming landslide vote that is <laughs> impossible to challenge uh, is certified Thank goodness for the Penn administrators that they can get that certification and move on with their <laughs> lives. The next step for the residents will be bargaining that first contract, which, as we often mention, is the real, you know, first real boss of the game. And it can be a really long process. The issue here is that because residency and fellowship have set end dates, many of the residents who actually took a leading role in organizing this union are totally unlikely to benefit from the terms in that first contract. <laughs> reminds me of environmental organizing for instance but but it also i think it highlights you know the fact the 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 solidarity yes. shown by these workers to future doctors understanding that it's worth having this fight as hard as it is even if they themselves are not going to see the direct benefits. You know, the whole finding something greater than yourself that can actually give meaning to life. I, I just think that so often people are told to kind of look out for themselves in this kind of situation. It's like, oh, you won't get the benefits of this. Like, it, it reminds me of the the uh, reason why fast food workers are never going to be able to be organized because it's not a career. It's just a temporary fill-in thing. And like, even though like there's a slight parallel in that, in that like, this is literally a temporary situation that they're going to be in, but that didn't stop them from actually standing up for their fellow human beings. Cause we do want to better the world for everyone. We don't want to see these struggles continue on. We don't want to go back to these communities and be like, Oh yeah. Oh shit's Still shitty. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. I did it too. <laughs> Nobody wants to really have that conversation. 
No, it, you know, it's like, am I a socialist because I think we're going to turn the United States around in my lifetime and I'm going to get to reap the benefits of communism personally? Probably fucking not. <laughs> like, you know, I maybe someone else's great grandkids can have a better life and that's fucking awesome. I'm in for that. Hell yeah. And what we're also in for. What? Is the memer. Oh, yeah, of course. Finally. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, we did. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow. This uh, this has been a, a kind of heavy episode. I don't know. Maybe it just feels heavy to me because I'm, I'm very no, exhausted. No, it is. We covered some dark stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's get some slightly more uplifting things, like uh, picket sign a of the day at the Oakland uh, EA, uh, Education Association strike, which has... People dressed in a Mario costume, an Oscar the Grouch costume, a giraffe costume. This this photo rocks. Yeah, uh, this is the Oakland Unified School District uh, on day six, where they were saying, uh, "Stop bringing us proposals that belong in the trash." Uh, there's oh, just some man. really great signs on here with, uh, I wish I can't exactly read this. I just love yeah, that the I, proposals that belong in the trash is held by none other than Oscar the Grouch in the trash can with the sticker or the sign on the front that says, scram. Oh. <laughs> I was <laughs> yeah. reading the, the text of the tweet and, uh, didn't realize cause the actual sign has slightly smaller text, uh, that, that it was just quoting that Oscar the Grouch sign. <laughs> yeah, no, fantastic energy by these teachers hell yeah and so our second meme is also sort of teacher related you know you'd have those days where uh the teacher's sick or extremely hungover and god bless <laughs> <laughs> and you know maybe it's not that day to start digging into pre-calc or whatever your class was and so they wheel out the crt that's strapped to a cart with the world's oldest vcr <laughs> and show you a movie but in this meme, it's an actually educational video for once because this one is just a picture of that TV cart. And it's, don't feel like posting today, so... And then it's yellow parenti on the TV. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is what they should have wheeled into my fifth grade classroom on 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, uh, they're not... Choices. Uh, <laughs> they're not underdeveloped. They're overexploited. Does have a relation in there somewhere? Yeah, it's not a total <laughs> non sequitur. <laughs> That's right. I, I really like this next one though. This is a, a golf image where um, there's a- so folks have probably seen this format before. Yeah. It's pretty common. Yeah, the guy. Uh, there, there's just this one guy looking at. Um, I don't know how do how do I describe this? Maybe I maybe I shouldn't be doing this image description. Well, I'm gonna so- let one of you do it. So it's. It's it's I be, it's like you know it's Tiger Woods walking up to the tee, but then in front of him is this, <laughs> and he's you know very professionally dressed, and then you've got the guy uh, standing at the tee smoking, and he's also in colorful uh, pants and a nice bright blue shirt. Yeah, and he just looks absolutely ridiculous <laughs> in comparison. But then it's 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 captioned my boss asking why I'm already on my fifth smoke break, and then me on my twelfth smoke break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> the, and the correct response to the question from your boss is, I swear to God, this is my second smoke break. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you right. need to interrogate my first smoke break? <laughs> <laughs> 
I haven't even been on smoke break. I'm not on smoke break right now. <laughs> I was just walking out. <laughs> just cue up that Australian Gen Z. I'm on Smoko song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The chats. <laughs> and so uh, our next one is 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 very current. Actually, our next two are both relating to the writer strike. So it's this one's a Jeopardy meme where you've got dating back to 1820. This wound related term is a derogatory name for someone who crosses a picket line during a strike. And then the bottom panel is just a picture of Ken Jennings. Boo. <laughs> because he, in fact, did cross the WGA picket line, folks. We do not love to see it. We do not love mm. Ken Jennings, trivia master. Nope. He is also a- have solidarity, Ken. Don't know what you're doing. It doesn't matter how good you are at trivia if you don't have solidarity. <laughs> but if, right. you, if you do have solidarity, you are invited to the Union Hall trivia night <laughs> where <laughs> 25,000 workers compete. <laughs> well, and the also to every question is Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> well, and also what I've learned about those things is that they get little medallions and like cufflinks and stuff like that when you mm. do really well at them. Nice. The- there is nothing you can win on regular Jeopardy that is in any way as cool as a Teamsters bomber jacket. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Although I am kind of hearing Homer Simpson going like, money can buy many, many Teamsters bomber jackets. <laughs> 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 then the last one is another picket sign. This is a Writers Guild on Strike sign. And uh, it's the, this is fine dog, but it's saying this is not fine. And he's got a really grumpy face and is holding his fist up at the, you know, uh, powerful salute, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very good. It's also got the union bug at the bottom because this I- has been printed by a union print shop. I love this. I didn't know that Illustrator's Guild was also on strike. Somebody's a talented artist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I rem- I know there have been like Animation Guild folks have been mm-hmm. on the picket line with them too. I saw some great ones where they did like a version of where it's like, it's clippy, but he's saying, oh, did, would you like some help from the Animation Guild in your strike? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome too because, you know, the Animation Guild has a really direct stake in this as well because uh, – Tearing down and uh, animation and comedy writers is a big part of what they're trying to fight against. Yeah, so it's been great to see all the incredible. There's been so many unions that have shown up on the Writers Guild strike line. It's been really dope to see. Absolutely. Yeah. So with that, I think that our suggestion to everyone is uh, when you figure out how to go on strike, make a sick sign because it might end up in the meme review. You know, we got yeah. we got so, a bunch of uh, strike signs in this one, so. I I do actually have a brief thing that I wanted to say because uh, in kind of the vein of the international solidarity stories on on this episode, because today, the day that we're recording this, May 15th, is the day that we commemorate the Nakba or the catastrophe, the anniversary of the Zionist occupation of Palestine. And so I just wanted to send all of our solidarity to the people of Palestine living under apartheid occupation that is only possible because of the support of the United States government, which uses Israel as its forward operating base to impose hegemony over West Asia. So just wanted to take this opportunity to call for an end to all aid to Israel, an end to the apartheid system, and to return sovereignty to the Palestinian people. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Hell yeah, free Palestine. Absolutely. Well, with that... Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. If you'd like to support our show, you can do it at patreon.com slash work stoppage. Jump in the discord, have a conversation with us. 
write us a review somewhere. Follow John on uh, Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Free Palestine. Solidarity and free Palestine. Solidarity, everybody. Free Palestine. Let's go.